Good morning. Happy New Year. So I looked back over what Doug had covered the last six years on Friday mornings, and he got, he got a lot done. He covered a lot of scripture. Uh, but today we're going to start a book that he didn't cover yet. So, of course, it may not matter. He could have done it three years ago, and we would probably have forgotten by now that he had done it, <laughs> which is not saying that he didn't have something good to say. It's saying something else, but you can figure that out. And there's some big questions that are coming up this year, 2019. Uh, some big questions like, are we going to face another financial crisis? Is, is Brexit really going to happen in England? They're asking that question. The question, could Facebook actually be broken up this year because of the challenges it's had? Um, will broadcast television survive? Are, is anybody watching that anymore? Um, Will Alabama win another national title? <laughs> that gets asked every year. That's not a new question. I understand that. Um, one for me is, because I'm an Orioles fan, will the Orioles repeat as the worst professional team in America? <laughs> Hoping that's not the case. But there's one question that, that gets asked all the time, every year, and has been asked for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's asked in different ways, and the scripture... The book we're going to look at starting today and through the month of January asks the same question. It's been phrased in different ways, but I like the way that Annie Dillard phrased the question in her book, Holy the Firm. Annie Dillard was an English professor, a writer. I think she went to Holland's College in Virginia, taught up in Vermont. Uh, she's 73 now. She's a National Humanities Medalist. She asked the question that everybody asked at some point in life, and this is how she put it, if we could have the first slide. What in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? <laughs> you might need to know, if you're, in case you're not aware, Sam Hill is a, a, certainly a euphemism for, well, for the devil, or maybe for where the devil lives. So what the is going on here anyway? That's the question really that we ask. It's the question that everybody asks at some point. And maybe you've been asking that. The Bible asks it all the time. Did you know that? So we have all these 66 books written by at least 40 different writers over a period of about 1,500 years. And almost every one of these books in the Bible, in some way or another, gets around to this question. What's going on here anyway? And, and the question really is, is God in charge or not? And if he's in charge... Why do things happen the way they do? Now, we've all asked that question. If we've lived in America long enough and seen the decline in morality since the 1950s, maybe, we ask that question. What's going on here anyway? Um, if we've been in the church long enough, the church in America, we've seen even the decline in the church and the, and the effectiveness of church nationwide for 25 years. We might ask, what's going on here anyway? So there's a prophet He's probably one of my favorite prophets. He's called a, a minor prophet, not because his message is minor, but because he didn't write much. He didn't have a whole lot to say. But he sure asked that question, and he asks it very directly to God. And we're going to look at that. We're going to start today by looking at this prophet named Habakkuk. And some of you might say, there's a guy named Habakkuk in the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah, there is. And his little book comes right after Nahum. So if you can find Nahum, you can find Habakkuk. And if you can find Zephaniah, look right before that. And if you can't find any of those, you've got a, a table of contents at the beginning. <laughs> Take a look. It's okay to do that. 
That's why it's there. You know, something about it, we feel like if we have to look at the table of contents in the Bible and someone sees this, they're going to think, wow, they're really spiritually immature or something. No, it's just that we don't know where the book is. <laughs> we need to look it up. It's okay to do that. Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk's a prophet. We know when he lived. We know the context of the life that was going on in Israel when he prophesied. And we don't know anything else about him. He doesn't give us any personal information. There's nothing else in the Bible referring to him, even though some of what he writes is referred to in other places. We know almost nothing. So we don't know what he looked like, but doesn't keep people from creating ideas of what he looked like. And the, the great Renaissance sculptor Donatello created this image that he called the prophet. Next slide, Matt. That looks like a guy who's uh, doing what Habakkuk did. Habakkuk's name, by the way, means to embrace or to wrestle, and that's pretty much what Habakkuk is doing. We'll see in this book. He's, he's embracing, but he's wrestling with God. And my guess is if you wrestle with God long enough, you might start looking like that too. God would be a pretty significant foe to wrestle with, I think. Habakkuk lived in, the, in about the same time as some, some bigger prophets, some major prophets, about the time of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, about then. He lived in the time and probably grew up when Josiah, the boy king in Israel, was in power as king. And you might remember that Josiah became king as a child, but was pretty soon aware that he was spiritually attuned to God. He instituted reforms in Israel. He got rid of a lot of idolatry. He smashed the Ashtoreth He tore down the Baal idols. He began to renovate the temple. So lots of renovation. They found this book called the Bible, called the Old Testament, the Old Covenant for them, as they were doing renovations and began to read it. And Josiah realized, we haven't been doing any of this stuff that God said we should do. So a revival kind of kicked off under Josiah's reign. And that's when Habakkuk was in Israel, or in Judah at the time. But it didn't last long, possibly because once Josiah was killed in battle, and it didn't take long for him to be killed in a battle, uh, all that went away very quickly. The whole nation of Judah reverted back to kind of its spiritual unbelief, its idolatry, its seeking whatever pleasure they wanted wherever they wanted it. That's when Habakkuk begins probably to prophesy. So that tells us timeline-wise that Habakkuk probably wrote or prophesied his writing sometime between 620 and 587 B.C. That's kind of the general window we have. We don't know specifically, but we know it's got to be in that window because of what he says. That's the backdrop to what he writes, he's going to write. And so we're going to see that what he has to say is really comes down to, to three things. The whole book of Habakkuk, three chapters, basically are two complaints to God and a prayer. That's his prophecy. Two complaints and a prayer. And he begins it with what he calls an oracle that he saw. So I don't know why he would say that he saw this, but when you wrestle with God, you see things. You see amazing things. So let's look at the first. We're just going to look at a few verses to start, read a little bit more as we get into it. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, 
strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That's the first of Habakkuk's complaints to God. He looks around in Judah, his experience of life there. Josiah the king is gone. Revival is over. He sees injustice. He sees all these issues. And he has questions. And what he does is not just ask how long. He comes very close to accusing God of not being involved. In fact, he pretty much does. Why do you make me see this? Why are you silent, God? He almost is impertinent to God. He's wrestling with God. He's very honest, brutally honest, probably more honest than most of us get in our prayers. He's comfortable enough to do that. And in so doing, he, he shows us that we have some freedom to talk to God, to be honest with him. And when things happen to us, to not hide behind a cloak of perceived spirituality, but to be real with God. So because Habakkuk is real with God, his first complaint shows us that. It's bold, it's probing, and he almost is accusing God of, of, well, connivance. That's really the word. Connivance defined by the definition in Webster is this. It's a willingness to secretly allow or be involved in wrongdoing, especially immoral or illegal acts. Conniving is when you shut your eyes to injustice when you pretend that you don't know about evil that's happening. And it looks like Habakkuk's right on the edge of saying that to God. You're shutting your eyes to what's going on, God. You're pretending like you don't know. But I know. You let me see it. I'm having to experience it. A good example of connivance is what happened on March 13th, 1964, in Queens, New York, when Kitty Genovese, who was a bar worker, a manager of a bar in Queens, went home from her night shift, arriving back at her apartment at about 3.20 a.m. in the morning. And as she walked from her car to her apartment building door, she was attacked and stabbed. She screamed loudly, I'm dying, help me. Lights began to go on in the apartment building and across the street. Windows began to open. Someone even yelled out of a window, get away from her to the man who had stabbed her. But nobody came out. She dragged herself 20 or 30 more feet toward her door. The man who had left came back up and stabbed her again. She continued to scream. More lights came on. She was waking up the neighborhood by then. Nobody came outside. Nobody called the police. She made it into her apartment building, began to crawl up the steps. The man came back a third time and stabbed her again. Now she's crying out inside her apartment building. Everybody in the building could hear it. Nobody ever came out of their door. Finally, 35 minutes later, somebody called the police. The police showed up in two minutes. They found her dead. And so they began to ask, as they were finding out what was going on, why didn't you call? Why didn't somebody call? And the answer they continued to get was one that has become famous for urban apathy, we just didn't want to get involved. Or, from women, I didn't want my husband to get involved. And so that became kind of the story of what connivance is. It's knowing evil is happening, 
but being completely unwilling or pretending to be ignorant of it. Connivance happens in our world all the time. It happens in families. It happens when there is family abuse going on and the family denies it or ignores it, but everybody outside the family sees it. We've probably seen some of that ourselves. It happens in, in business and in board meetings. It happens when the board knows that there's a little greed going on, that they're overpaying some executives, or that perhaps they know there are safety concerns on their product, but they would rather hedge their bets, and instead of bringing and recalling all those products back, they'll set enough funds aside to pay the damages, even the death claims that could result. That's connivance. It's kind of ignoring the fact that there's something wrong. It happens in the church. Just think of that. From popes to deacons and elders at churches all over the world, there are times when they will ignore or cover up pastoral abuse for the sake of keeping things quiet. That's connivance. Habakkuk almost is accusing God of connivance. Connivance, I think, is a sin. <laughs> we would probably categorize it as that. All that to say, Habakkuk's pretty shook up here. This guy is passionate about God. He's passionate about truth. He's passionate about justice. And he looks at his world, Judah, should be God's people, renovated the temple, found the law, supposed to be keeping it. Nothing's working right. Everything's going wrong. And he cries out to God. And, and there are actually six things that he sees in this first four verses and that he lists as kind of problems. And we can put that up, Matt, next slide. Six problems that Habakkuk identifies in his complaint. It's kind of like this. He sees violence everywhere. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> he sees injustice where there should be justice. He sees wrong. We, would, we could call it sin. The word he uses can be interpreted wrong, but it's sin. He sees destruction and strife and conflict. Then he says the law is paralyzed. It can't work. It doesn't work. It's not enforced. It's paralyzed from doing what it's designed to do and the wicked outnumber the righteous. Now, we look at that list, and we could say, well, that's kind of the list that Notre Dame had when they played Clemson. That's what they were facing. All of that was going on against them. But it's really what we see in our culture. It happens over and over again, which is why I think Habakkuk is one of the most, most pertinent books to any culture, but particularly our day. It speaks to, to our experience as well. This is Habakkuk's complaint. It's a lot on his mind. Now, I know a pastor who resigned his position as pastor of a church and left the calling of being a pastor, will no longer pastor again. His church wasn't growing too well, and his congregation was dissatisfied, and, and he was kind of a lightning rod for all of that. Not only that, his teenage son was in rebellion, was in trouble with the law, and impregnated his girlfriend. And so this pastor just finally said, how long, O oh Lord, do I do this? I can't do it. I give up. I quit. And I don't even know that he's exactly walking in the faith right now. Things happen in life that we have no explanation for, that we don't seem to be able to say, I know this happened and it led to that. We experience some of the things that Habakkuk experienced. We can experience injustice or wrong done against us, evil, even violence, the law not being worked out the way it should be. It can seem like the wicked are outnumbering the righteous all the time. And sometimes we just don't have a way to explain it. We go to God and we ask, what's going on? 
I mean, that happens a lot when we get a diagnosis, for instance, that's not at all what we were hoping for uh, in some illness or disease, or our financial situation bottoms out and tanks, or our marriage falls apart, or our children rebel. There's so many issues and reasons why we could be asking the kind of question that Habakkuk is asking. Augustine, great church father who wrote many good things, when he came across this kind of, of situation in life, had this to say. He said, the secrets of heaven and earth remain hidden from us. Well, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> and what Augustine was saying is, we're not going to get the answers all the time. Sometimes we just don't. You know, people ask me, when we talk about this, this issue of theodicy, the question of God and evil, you know, why does God let things happen the way he does? My answer usually is simply that he doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We don't get that kind of information. Those are the things, like Augustine said, the secrets of heaven and earth are still hidden from us. So Augustine said the best response we can have to this is simply, quote, to rest patiently in unknowing. Now let that sink in a minute. Rest patiently in unknowing. When's the last time you rested patiently in unknowing? It doesn't happen. We're not wired well to do that. And we sure don't live in a culture that encourages us to rest patiently in unknowing. I should be able to Google anything and get an answer. I mean, I get impatient when I can't. So we were looking last night online, my wife and I, trying to figure out the proper etiquette for holding baby showers because two of our daughters are pregnant. And they've asked, well, I guess we have baby showers, but can you come? Can you do it? And my wife is a little more of a stickler for the etiquette of such things, but she said, well, where do we find this out? I don't have my mother's copy of Emily Post's etiquette anymore. <laughs> I said, well, I'm sure you could find that online. Let's ask Miss Manners, uh, Judith Martin. Well, you can't ask Miss Manners online unless you buy her book. <laughs> you can get a little bit more out of Emily Post, but not a lot. And gets frustrated. Wait a minute, I should be able to just go online and get the answer just like this. And I find even myself impatient. So to be patient and unknowing, mm, I don't know. The point of Habakkuk is, at least this first section, is that we can cry out to God. It's okay. Remember Jesus on the cross used the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus knew why, Right? He knew the plan of God. He understood redemption. He knew why he had come. He said it to his disciples. But when it came down to it, and he was experiencing the complete injustice of bearing the sins, our sins, he had to ask, why have you forsaken me, God? Even the martyrs, it says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, they cry out to God and say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? our blood shed for the cause of Christ. It's okay to ask. There's no promise we'll get the answer. We may have to find that the rest we are looking for is only going to come in unknowing as opposed to knowing the answer. So how about Habakkuk? Well, he cries out to God. What was he expecting to hear back, you think? Here's a, here's a suggestion. Habakkuk cries out all these issues, these six complaints he has about what he's experiencing. He's asking God, where are you in this? Why are you letting this happen? And maybe he's thinking he'll get 
something like the experience of Psalm 107, verses 13 and 14, that said this, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from all their distress. He brought them out of darkness and deepest gloom and broke away their chains. So perhaps Habakkuk is thinking, if I cry out to God and, and lift up my request and my complaint, if I point out to God, God, you're just not getting it done. He'll do what he's done in my history, in my lifetime. He'll bring revival again to Judah. He'll bring a recovery of a love for the law and the covenant and a willingness to obey and worship the one true God. And then he gets God's answer. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. This is what the Lord says. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an, evil, an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. That's God's answer. Wow. Maybe not exactly what Habakkuk was looking for. <laughs> Maybe. There's not even a little mention of revival. There's not a mention of the law being reinstituted in Judah. There's no mention of the temple. You can assume what's going to happen to the temple. It is going to happen, in fact. It's not good news. So no wonder that when Habakkuk hears that, he's going to say, and we're going to look at this next week, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what I was asking for. That's not what you're supposed to be like. That's not how God acts. Come on, God, get with the program. <laughs> you're God. You should know better than this. That's going to be his next complaint. But notice that as he does that, we see some things that God is doing. That in God's response to Habakkuk, which is a prophecy, it's God telling Habakkuk, the prophet, this is what I'm about to do. I'm bringing the Chaldeans, and they're a pretty formidable foe to have to face. And I'm going to make things happen. In fact, it's, it's not good news at all. I'm raising them up, this hasty nation, to scourge Judah, to, to punish, to discipline. What are these like? Well, pretty amazing. God says, I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told, because you know, Habakkuk can hardly believe it. Who would want to see that? But you know what? Just imagine if God were to come into your life and say those words to you. I'm about to do a work in your sight that you wouldn't believe. I mean, wouldn't we be excited? Wouldn't we be thinking, this is going to be an incredible sign. We've been waiting for this. God's finally going to show up, and he's going to show everybody he's really the boss after all. I mean, it's the kind of thing the Pharisees asked Jesus to do. Show us a sign. 
Show us something that proves you really are God. And Jesus wouldn't do it. Why wouldn't he do it? Makes sense. I mean, everyone would then bow down and worship, right? No, they won't. <laughs> no, we won't. Because Jesus knows, God knows, <clears throat> that a sign doesn't do what we think it'll do. We think it'll help us to believe better. Sometimes a sign, we can just use it to wash away what we do know, not worry about obedience anymore. God has something bigger in mind than Habakkuk can see. God's going to restore Judah at one point in the future, but not right now. In fact, he's going to scourge. He's going to do it through these Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians, the, the big superpower that's about to rise in this day, in Habakkuk's day. They're going to sweep across the earth. They're going to seize dwellings, not their own. They're described as feared and dreaded, a law unto themselves, promoting their own honor. Hmm. Do we know any nations like that? A law unto themselves, promoting their own honor, feared and dreaded, seizing dwellings, not their own. There have been a few of those kinds of nations and people groups in our lives and in our world. It's like if God were to show up and say to us, I'm going to bring a most fearful and dreadful future for you. And it may be like a nation. <clears throat> what if God were to show up and say, ISIS is going to come over to your shores now and do what they've been doing in other parts of the world in a big way? What if God showed up and said, I'm sending not just one, but four hurricanes next year to do amazing damage in your country? What if God said, I'm sending a new disease that's resistant to everything you know, and it's going to take you a long time to figure out how to battle it? What if we knew that that was God's answer to our prayer, our request? We'd feel a little bit of what Habakkuk's got to be feeling. Dismay. Unbelief. How could God do this? Would God do this? It just doesn't seem right. That's what happens, because history shows us that this is exactly what occurred. What Habakkuk sees in his oracle, what he writes in his prophecy, is exactly what happens in history. So history being what it is, well, what is history? Is it, I guess it's been described as a description of the past, or what has occurred in the past. <clears throat> it can be good news or bad news. Now, when God's involved, we tend to think of history as redemptive history. God has a plan of redemption. We look back into history and we see redemptive history at work, God's plan. The Bible <clears throat> is the story of God's plan. It's redemptive history. But not everybody sees history as so redemptive. I mean, somebody once said, <clears throat> and I'm not sure if we even know exactly who said it, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> said something like, history is just one darn thing after another. <clears throat> But they didn't use the word darn, if you know what I'm saying. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, that great British writer, said, history is only a confused heap of facts. Not much into history was G.K. Chesterton. Voltaire, he said this, history is a bag of tricks that we play upon the dead. <laughs> That's probably pretty good. Cicero was a little more kind to historians. History is indeed the witness of the times the light of truth. I was a history major. That sounds about right. Oh, maybe Mark Twain was right. He talked about history this way. The past does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. That sounds like Twain. But it was Henry Ford who was best known for a comment he made about history. You remember Henry Ford, the great uh, 
founder of the Ford Motor Corporation, um, at one time one of the wealthiest men in the world, still one of the best known people in history of a pre our last century. Um, he is known for two things that he said. That's, most people can't remember much about him, but they remember that. First one is this, history is bunk. Well, he didn't really put it that way, but that's what we think he said. History is bunk. The second thing, of course, you probably know what he said about this too. People can have the Model T in any color as long as it's black. That was Henry Ford. What he actually said about history is this. History is more or less bunk. It's, a, it's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that's worth a tinker's damn is the history we make today. That's what Ford said. Now, you might need to be reminded, what's a tinker's dam? A tinker was a, is an occupation. It's someone who repaired metal pots and pans uh, by soldering them back together. But they were known as kind of a rough, coarse group of people who used foul language quite often. So a tinker's dam was the way a tinker would talk. And Ford is saying, really, and it comes down to it, history doesn't matter. But God says history matters. So he says to Habakkuk, pay attention to what I'm going to do. Because what I'm doing here is going to be significant. Even though you don't like it, even though you don't understand it, it's going to make a difference. So from these verses, in God's response to Habakkuk's first complaint, the great British Welsh, actually, preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones saw four great lessons from history. So I thought I'd share those because I think can't do any better than Martin Lloyd-Jones when you look at this passage. He said, first of all, history is under God's control. Every nation that's ever existed on earth and every nation that might rise or fall has power only because God lets it have power. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they seem to be self-made power people. A powerful nation that rose up in and of itself. Reality is, God's saying, no, I rose them up. I'm the one who does that. History is in my hands. All of history is under God's control. Things are not the way they appear to be. No matter what the news may tell you. <laughs> and you know about the news. We won't go there today. Secondly, history follows a divine plan. Does history really have a plan? Is history circular? Is history linear? Does it just rhyme and not repeat? Well, God says, I've got a plan. History is going to be the telling of my plan throughout all of the world. Now, that plan may not be apparent to many people, but there is a plan. There's a purpose. Things don't happen accidentally. Even things in our world aren't accidentally happening. God is in control. He's following a plan. And the amazing thing about it is that the very center of God's plan, we know from the Bible, the very center of his plan is the church in our day. That's the center of God's plan for the advancing of his kingdom in the world. So God is in control. He's in charge, and he's got a plan. And then thirdly, everything follows a divine timetable. It happens on God's timeline, not on our timeline. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, God says, I'm doing a work in your days to Habakkuk. He's saying to Habakkuk, I'm showing up. You ask where I am. I'm right here. I'm doing a work in your day. You're not going to believe it when, you, when I tell you and when you see it because it's not going to look like what you think it should, but I'm working. I'm doing it. And he says in the next chapter, we'll look at this next week, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's happening, Habakkuk. 
the vision I'm giving you, it's not going to lie. It's going to happen just the way I'm telling you on my time schedule. God said in Ezekiel 12, 25, For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. So when God decides it's time for him to act, God acts. And he acts in ways that that we don't understand. He uses people that we don't agree with. But he's going to act because it's his timeline. It's his timetable. And then lastly, history is bound up with a divine kingdom. You know, we, we can encounter surprising things in our world that we can't explain. And we even have a hard time explaining them from a biblical viewpoint. We, we take history, we take current events, we filter it through scripture, and we try to figure out, is God in this? How is he in it? And it's not easy. There, there's a reason why he sent prophets in the Old Testament. Because his people at that point, the, the believing Israelites, the Judah, Judeans, they had a hard time too figuring out what God was doing. Prophets came to help and to encourage and sometimes rebuke. But they were also there to remind. God has a timeline and all that's happening is bound up in his kingdom. So what are the questions we ask as we close today in this passage? What do we ask for us? Well, is there any evidence that God is, is working in, in our lives today? Is there any evidence that his kingdom is advancing in our world? What's that look like? What, what does that feel like? And then maybe more personally, when things happen to us that we don't understand, that we can't explain, that we don't even appreciate, that we wish weren't happening, how do we respond? Our first response often is, I don't deserve this. Why is God doing this? And I, we get that. That's how we're wired. We kind of respond to that. Maybe we could respond with another set of questions like, what is God teaching me? What needs to be changed in me that I can be more in line with his kingdom values, that I can be more like Christ? Because the reality is that our histories, our church's histories, they're all tied together with the great redemptive plan of God that comes forth in the book of Habakkuk. So the next few weeks as we continue to look, uh, the reality is we're not going to know why things happen to us the way they do. Uh, We're only going to know this. God promises that he's for us, not against us. He promises never to abandon us. And maybe the words that come from the book of Esther, when Mordecai comes to Esther and says, who knows that what has happened to you, her royal position, You know the book of Esther. Who knows that what has happened to you at such a time as this might be God's very plan in life. Have a great day.